21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. And uh, top of the list is, uh, for example, Dr. Phil. Marvel, you know, I mean, huge names. I am at the bottom of the list, but you know, it's the first step. You're on the list. I'm on the list, exactly. <laughs> so, Drew, what about your list? What about my list? Are you at any, are you at any list? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in terms of lists, but, but yeah, um, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm definitely one of the only African-American venture capitalist out here in the U.S. Very, very small amount. I would say there's probably less than 1% of us out there. And, uh, that's just because historically, you know, we haven't had a ton of access to to a clear path to opportunity to be able to raise a venture fund and also invest in um, in tech companies. You know, like we 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 are. I think today we're the only. Uh, uh, consultancy as well that focuses on uh, fintech companies. Fintech has been really in the golden age for the last, I'd say decade or so of, of seeing a lot of innovation in how financial products are built and how they're, a lot of them are built for call it low income underserved communities across the globe. So we really focus on working with financial companies, helping improve financial health and also providing access to um, underserved, the underserved population that historically didn't have financial products built for them. So on, on a couple decent lists there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. By the way, what are some of uh, some common characteristics of a fintech startup? Common characteristics, uh, well, uh, just to give you like a little bit of like history there, I think it's really shifted over the years. You know, historically, uh, a lot of fintech products were built for, I'd say like the top 10% of, of the globe, where it was for people that already had a ton of income and they were helping them manage that income. Where now a lot of products are being built for uh, the, the rest uh, or say the 90% of the world that doesn't typically make a ton of money but still need help to better and more efficiently manage their money and make more money. So, um, you know, common characteristics of, of fintechs are the banks that we all know today, the ones where we have a checking and savings deposit. But what it's turning into is um, investment vehicles like Robinhood and Coinbase and crypto and all different ways for you to invest money, for you to earn money from it, for you to understand the literacy of like, what do I need to know before I put my money somewhere else? Also knowing, you know, if I have X amount of dollars, this is how I should be thinking about um, managing it the right way. But there's all these different products from lending to savings to checking, um, you know, all the way over to investing that is like very topical today in the market. What are then the key, key factors uh, for success when it comes to growing a fintech startup? 
Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, a, a lot of, because uh, I'll tell you, there, there's a lot of, there's a big trend going on right now that you probably hear called embedded fintech. That is basically uh, people that have created these, call it APIs or these platforms that make it so someone like you and me, if we said, hey, we want to create a bank tomorrow, um, we could literally work with one of these companies and they would stand up the bank and we would just create a brand in front of it. So the path to creating these fintech companies is very easy now. So the biggest challenge isn't necessarily like coding and developing the product. It's really around finding a challenge and a problem that needs to be solved. Um, a very simple example is, is 75% of America doesn't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency. Like that is 75% of America that needs to earn an extra $1,000 a month. So they're not constantly uh, fearful of their kid breaking their arm and them going into debt over it. So for example, that's a great premise to create a FinTech company to help people not only earn money, with jobs, but also help them better manage their income so they're not living paycheck to paycheck. So I always think about the big, the biggest challenge is, hey, like ne- let, let me not just start a bank because starting a bank is cool right now, but let's start a bank around solving a very specific problem for a very specific demographic, because the more specific you get, um, the better you are going to be at staying focused and solving something bigger than simply just trying to get people to open up checking and savings accounts. How important uh, is branding in today's business landscape? It's huge. It's huge. But uh, again, like branding, I think a lot of people think branding is just simply design. Like this looks beautiful. um, So therefore I will buy it. It's deeper than that. Like this is no longer the Mad Men days where, you know, you like build a really beautifully designed thing and people will come. Um, There's many more layers. So we even talk about what I was just saying, like you have to start out with a problem. Once you figure out the problem, you understand the demographic. Demographic and the persona is age. It's uh, how people identify themselves. It's geographic location. It even comes down to like what they're spending their money on. Are they spending their money on Jordans and Nikes or are they spending their money on suits and ties? But once you get really, really, really uh, specific with who that consumer is, then you can build a brand around it. So yes, brand brand and design is massively important, but it's it's a lot tougher to build a brand where you want the entire world to come versus building a brand where you only want podcast hosts to come. But once you understand what a pod, podcast, podcast host is, how they tick, how they operate, what they care about, where they want to go on vacation, where they want to buy their shoes at, at that point, you can build a, build a brand around that persona and that specific demo. Let's go to business models. Are there any common business models? I mean, how they make money? Yeah, well, the, the most common business model for a fintech, like, I keep, I feel like I keep talking about these like digital banks because again, like we're going through this massive transition from 
the brick and mortar banks that we all know, where we have to leave our home and then go walk in, sit down, talk to somebody. Or now we're seeing all these like large digital banks pop up where they don't have to deal with the overhead of having, you know, 200 different physical locations across the world or the country. But really by having a digital bank, you can shed a lot of those overhead costs and invest it into the product and build like something super cohesive. Um, what how a digital banks typically make makes money is based on interchange revenue. And that's based on the amount of transactions that are happening. A transaction is, is an event where we are every single time we invest money or, you know, maybe our company is auto uh, auto depositing money. They make a small transaction fee for all the money movement. That's uh, for some of the old guard banks. That turns out to be something that's like very lucrative because they have millions of folks. But that's really just like how you create the, the starting point of a fintech company. It's really the other services that they offer that generate the most amount of revenue. For example, getting a home loan, uh, getting a student loan, um, going and you know, uh, refine your mortgage for your house. That's where these ancillary services is where they make the, mo the majority of their money. So there's always like a core, uh, a, a core service where they make money but it's all these ancillary services. Once you've built the trust with your user where you're able to really do it. But remember like if the amount of trust as users, once we create an account for a bank that we have in that bank goes really far and it's up to the bank to maintain and nurture those relationships to, to, to ultimately like turn that into more services. A bank is only one type of FinTech, but there's many other ones. There's ones that are helping you build your credit, right? And Typically, uh, if, if it's, a plat it's a mobile app that's trying to help you build your credit, you're doing a couple things. You are sometimes getting them to pay a subscription fee for like constant monitoring of credit so they can always like give you the opportunity to check your credit. Um, also, we've seen credit platforms where you get all like everyone purchases subscription products today. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon. By having subscription services where you're paying on a month over month basis, if you do that on time, every time, you will naturally grow your credit score out here in the US. So a lot of these credit companies are actually pulling in all of these subscription products and they're helping you pay these on time. Therefore, they're uh, raising your credit score. We all know like credit scores are subprime, they're prime, um, super prime. But if they're subprime and you have a 500 or 400 um, point credit score, that will make it so you can't go buy a house, so you can't rent an apartment. It will so severely impact how you live your day-to-day -day life. So there's been like a big push from the credit standpoint of helping improve credit scores across America specifically to make it so people have more access to the daily life and like the financial health and lifestyle that they want to live. By the way, what happened with Netflix from your point of view? You know, Netflix is tough. We're in the middle of a content battle right now. Um, I think it was something they did a report on across all the different um, uh, uh, streaming services that on average, they were spending around $3,000 per household um, based on the amount of investment that had been made into content creation over the last five years, which is crazy to think about knowing that we probably pay, you know, $13, $14 a month for whatever our streaming service is. And what they're doing is they're making that investment that, uh, based on the fact that we'll remain users for the rest of our life. So we'll ultimately pay back that investment that they're making. 
I think for Netflix, though, is what they're starting to feel is the competition starting to creep in. What used to be these small competitors are starting to grow up and they've consolidated. So you look at, um, there's a deal going on right now where for, I think it's $9.99 a month, you get unlimited access to ESPN, Hulu, and Disney+. Plus. It's like deals like that where you see these consolidated uh, content houses coming together to try to compete with Netflix. And then also you have stuff like YouTube TV. You have all these other platforms popping up where people are saying, I'm tired of spending $20 a month in 10 different areas. I want to spend $100 a month in one area. And so the last two decades, all these individual products have popped up to where we just started paying for all these different things. Now we're moving back into this world of consolidation where everyone wants everything under one roof. And Netflix is starting to feel that because they're still sitting on an island where it's one platform with one type of content. I mean, HBO is probably their biggest competitor right now. And HBO is cheaper. And HBO historically has driven some of the absolute best content out there. And all these platforms that used to be a part of cable have now created their own streaming platforms like an HBO, like a Showtime, like a Stars. The last thing I'll say is the proliferation of smart TVs has made it a lot easier for people to engage with content. Where historically people would watch Netflix on their computer. Now with smart TVs, you can hold all these different apps and it's a lot easier to navigate across all these different content platforms. Therefore, making it easier for you to pick and choose in a much easier way, which ones you wanna invest in and the ones you wanna move away from. What are the most effective uh, marketing channels for reaching new customers? It's it's so dependent. You know, like we become a mobile society. So um, typically whatever is able to reach a cell phone the easiest is the most effective. And so we we typically go back to call it like Facebook not because Facebook is still really, really hot, but mainly because of Instagram, which is probably the best investment they ever made. Um, so, you know, Facebook's huge, of course, with Instagram. Um, TikTok is becoming a massive, massive channel, and they're just starting to really figure out the best way to make their, um, to make their marketing arm really effective for a lot of people. Um, and so I would say social media is probably the biggest here. Um, and that's for like the smaller companies, you know, the, the majority of the companies across the globe are small businesses. These are, and because we've kind of come into this, this reckoning of, of all these companies popping up, like the Shopify's of the world and the Squarespace's of the world that make it super easy for anyone that has an idea to stand up a business overnight, they start putting marketing dollars against that. And they're trying to spend their money in the most equitable way part, uh, possible. Um, and, um, and it's obviously different if, you're, if you have like a digital uh, company versus a physical company. I know that if I spend $10 on marketing and I'm selling, you know, cell phone cases, that I want to make sure that I'm making that, I'm getting that return immediately. For a digital company, sometimes I have to spend $10. I know that I'm going to get $1 back tomorrow, but over time, I'm going to get thousands of dollars back tomorrow. So I just need to be able to see the future there. But the marketing platforms in general are the social media platforms. And those are the ones that are going to, are going to 
for going to give you the ability to scale the quickest, but also learn about your consumer the quickest because you can get super dialed in and specific with the type of folks and the type of demographics you want to get in front of to test if they're your actual user and your best lifetime user. Drew, what are your most important values? Wow. Most important values for me, um, always have to say family, um, because uh, that that breathes life into me. Um, from a business standpoint, it is it's access. Uh, I'm just like, I, I grew up in the inner city of I was lucky enough to have exposure to all different types of people from all different uh, types of life. That could be the folks that are struggling for their next paycheck in a single parent household um, that can only afford to go to public schools. Or it's the folks that, you know, live in, you know, six bedroom houses and just like live in opulence. And by having exposure to, to both sides, um, I was really able to understand what it's like for the people that have the least and understand what they don't have access to on a daily basis. So going back to what I said earlier of like 75% of Americans don't have $500 in savings in case of emergency. What I spend a lot of time on in terms of the companies I invest in at Fiat Ventures and the companies we work with at our growth consultancy, Fiat Growth, is working with brands that are focused on the, the marginalized communities across America and across the globe and are really designing products to better provide access to them. That could be something as simple as life insurance, where, for example, most people think life insurance is in case of death, I need to be able to provide, you know, means to my family for the foreseeable for the rest of their lives where other people that might not have as much simply want to have $25,000 in their life insurance policy. So their family doesn't go into debt because they're paying for their funeral and like final expenses. But it's like products like that and like making sure that we, that I stay, um, I, I stay focused on the marginalized and the folks that need our help the most is massively important not only for what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, but also for the future of our, of our world that we live in today. Beside the, the products, what is the most important investment to go out from that 70% of population in, in, in a matter of uh, specific personality traits, uh, daily routine, mindset? It's a really good question. I, I frankly struggle with it. Um, I struggle with it. Is it is it simply financial literacy? Like we we should be better educating everyone around finance and around how to best invest your time and your money to better improve your life, or is it around financial wellness? And the difference being is is literacy is assuming that everyone wants to learn the same way. Um, which I'll tell you this, like I grew up with learning disabilities. I am very much a visual learner. So it was very hard for me in school as a kid to comprehend, you know, what was going on from a finance standpoint. But I'll also say as a kid, they weren't teaching me financial literacy in terms of how I would use it in real life. They were teaching me long division and like calculus and the whole nine. Financial wellness though is different because it's very specific to each individual. Um, for example, if I grew up and, you know, I'm just obsessed with streetwear and I want to buy shoe, shoe, shoes. 
there's a very easy way for that individual to learn about financial literacy in the standpoint of every single time you buy Jordans, why don't you also put $20 into Nike stock? Because if you're if you believe in this brand so much, you should also own a piece of it. Um, and so I just think there's a multitude of ways of approaching it. I'll say this: I invest in both because I also want to learn both. Financial literacy is key. Financial wellness is key, but also making sure that we like redefine what ownership looks like. Um, I think that's the easiest way of doing it. If I'm purchasing something, if I'm buying if I'm buying a Snickers bar, if I'm buying a Jordan shoe, if I'm buying uh, I'm trying to look at other brands around here, but yeah, if I'm buying a, f- a football Jersey, like why not invest in, in, in stocks that are investing in the NFL or why not invest in, in, in all these different companies so I can play a role in both understanding the investment while also doing something I'm going to do anyway, which is just making that purchase because that feeds my soul because I don't have enough money to think about what the, the future of investing looks like in my personal life. What about Drew? Future, your future in five years. Drew in five years. Oh, what a great question. This excites me. I think about this way too often. In five years, um, I'll tell you this. So I'm the co-founder of Fiat Venture, Fiat Growth. Fiat Growth is a growth consultancy that helps early stage, mainly fintech companies scale with uh, with a big focus on helping underserved communities and helping them thrive and improve their financial health. I believe that side of our business is going to just like continue to scale. We have a 25 person team. I see that being a 200 person company and us working with like the next generation of fintech and bridging the, the um, relationship that people have with finances. Um, we have a super interesting model there where we get a retainer for our services We get advisory share, so equity in the business, but we also ask for the right to invest in all of our clients because we want to invest in the companies that we see as being the outright winners in the space. We were lucky enough to bring on one of my closest friends. So my co-founder of Fiat Growth is Alex Harris. Uh, we bring up, brought on one of my closest friends, Marcos Fernandez, who is the managing partner at Fiat Ventures. Alex and myself are also general partners at Fiat Ventures. We raised a $15 million dollar venture fund in 2021 where we can make those investments. So five years from now, not only do I see Fiat Growth being this 200 person thriving consultancy, helping the marginalized, but I also see Fiat Ventures being on, you know, fund number three or fund number four, and us having enough capital over time, maybe a hundred million dollar fund or a $200 million fund, where we can not only invest in these early stage companies, but also reinvest in them the larger they get, and making sure that we're double, tripling, and quadrupling down on the companies that are making the largest impact, that are doing the best. And so we have both sides. If you take a step back, we have Fiat Growth that is this consultancy that doubles as this incredible due diligence arm. And then we also have Fiat Ventures where we get to invest in the future of FinTech. And we get to also run the due diligence arm of working with them prior to investment. So the kind of this like perfect ecosystem and like circle of life where we get to work with and get to know these teams and what they're working on, have a big impact on what they're building, and then invest in them when the right time and opportunities arise, when we can kind of see how big they can be and how big that their vision can become. Thank you so much for the time. My name is Drew Glover, founding partner at Fiat Growth.
uh, our growth consultancy, and I am also a general partner at Fiat Ventures. Um, if you're interested in learning more, please go to our website. It is simply fiatgrowth.com. And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, my name is Drew Glover again. Always happy to engage in discussion and, and answer any questions. But again, appreciate the time and, um, and all the really thoughtful questions. 21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskorik.